Okay, well, a slideshow of Arizona. Um, the slideshow is online. If you go to my Facebook page, you can see all the pictures. Uh, uh, we, we need to <laughs> need to get started on this. Uh, once again, we are right on time at being twenty minutes late. Uh, so let's get started. Uh, Charlie, can you open us in prayer? Father, please uh, protect our great travel today. Give me patience. Let everybody know that don't get to where they need to go. Just put it in your heart to slow down. And be mindful of road. Please have So last week, we uh, began lesson two, looking at the nature of God uh, and his attributes. And we went through that list of different questions, looking at true or false, uh, is this statement accurate pertaining to God as he's revealed in scripture, is it inaccurate? Um, some of us learned some new things last week, uh, some heretical teachings that we weren't aware of, um, but overall, we, we simply looked at an introduction of who God is, um, answering those questions, and so we continued that looking a little bit more specifically at the Word. Uh, and, and what Scripture has to say about the nature of God. And so we're on page 12 of your workbooks. At the top of the page, the nature or essence of God. And so the first thing we're looking at is that God is a pure spirit. And uh, if I can get... Someone to read John four twenty four. So how does Jesus describe the nature of God here? The spirit. Um what does it mean that God is a spirit? You know, we're coming up on the uh, fall season. Halloween is coming around the corner. People are talking about spirits. Is that what we mean when we say God is a spirit? Is he like a, a, a disembodied figure floating around? 
doesn't have a body. And yet there's a real reality to it. Because mm. we see in Isaiah where the Lord saw himself born, sitting on his throne, with the cherubim floating up young, honoring him, serving So there's a there's a corporal presence, whether it's at least a visual presence. Yeah. Uh, I like uh, I like what the children's catechism says on this question. Uh, shorter catechism elaborates a little more, but the children's catechism is very simple and I think very accurate. And it says God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. Um, and I think that like men is is the key there. There is a corporealness to him, but it's it's not like men. You know, God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like men, but there is a physical nature to him. There's a physical reality to God. Um, and yet he is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Um, and so when we're thinking about who God is uh, in his essence, in his nature, we have to remember that, you know, we're, we're flooded by these images, these false images of God all the time of this old bearded man sitting up on the clouds. And we have to get that notion out of our head. That is not who our God is. That is the God of Michelangelo. Um <laughs> And so we, we gotta we gotta understand the spiritual nature of who God is. Uh, someone read for me Acts seventeen verse twenty four. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Okay, so what does Paul say God does not do? Yeah, God does not dwell in temples made by hands. Uh, and, And we're told that there will be a temple which is not made by hands in which God will dwell among his people in the new Jerusalem. And that's what we look forward to in, in, in times past, God chose to allow his presence to be uh, experienced in a greater degree within the temple in Israel, which was a temple made by hands. But now he is in all places and has poured his spirit out among, among all men. But yet there is still a way in which God is more specially present with his people. When is that? Yeah, the gathering of the church. You know, when we come together as his body, as the corporate church, God is specially present in that meeting. 
Uh, but there will come a day, you know, thinking ahead, thinking towards the end of this age, there will come a day when we will dwell in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven, new earth, and it is there that the temple which is not made with hands is said to be where God will dwell eternally uh, with his people. And so that is, that's what we have to look forward to. But the only way that that can work is if God is a spirit. If he were not a spirit, if he had a body like men, then he would have to dwell in dwellings like men, correct? But yet he's a spirit and he has a spiritual dwelling and it's a dwelling that is not like that of men. It is not made with hands. Any questions? Yes, Chris. One question and then another separate interpretation of what I... You, you got you to use two hands for that. Okay. Um, one, your point of God not having a body like man, how do we reconcile um, the, the giving of the Ten Commandments when God goes on with his fingers? Yeah, so God acts and it's conveyed to us through what's called anthropomorphic language. Uh, basically, the divine actions are communicated through human uh, ways. And so that's, that's what we see there. And so when we, when we hear, like in, in the writing of the Ten Commandments, that God has a finger, or that he's turned his ear, or as we read in the book of Revelation, that the... That the uh, prayers of the saints enter into the throne room of God as fragrant aroma. You know, God doesn't have a nose. He doesn't have an ear. He doesn't have a finger. He's communicating in a way that we can understand. So it, it's what's called condescension. He is condescending to communicate in a way that we can understand because we as finite beings cannot understand the infinite. Yes, ma'am. Can you then clarify when God put Moses in the cliff and Moses was only allowed to see his back? How would that... Yeah, there, there, is, there is a reality to his being, too, in a way that we really can't understand. Um, what I would argue and, and other people can argue other things and still be within the bounds of orthodoxy, I would argue that any time that the, the person of God is witnessed visibly in Scripture, so whether that be you know Moses seeing the backside of the Lord, whether that be... Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and there being a fourth one, which is like the Son of Man. Whether that be the angel of the Lord appearing uh, in various times. Isaiah 6, like Bob mentioned, where Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God and sees uh, the Lord enthroned high and lifted up. 
uh, I would argue that all of these accounts are prefigurings of the pre-incarnate Christ. So being like God assuming a form that man could understand. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Bob. So Moses also had at the tabernacle man representation of God all always there in terms of the cloud that hung over it and the fiery night light. So God was represented by those things. So his presence was there as demonstrated by those physical manifestations. So God seeing, Moses seeing the hindsight of God is very different than him seeing, looking at the book, oh, there's a cloud over there. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, so it's much more personal. Yeah, yeah. There. Yeah, God allowed that. There's a difference between, you know, God's presence being shown in a particular way, like with the the pillar of fire, the cloud by day, the burning bush. You know, that is the Lord, you know, not being imaged by those things, but conveying his special presence in that way. And that is different than what we see with Moses and with the angel of the Lord, with the Son of Man in the fiery furnace, with the Lord enthroned in Isaiah 6. These are actual what, what the writers conveyed as looking like physical people, but we know that they're not. Um, and we know this because, you know, no physical person has the ability to shield Moses' eyes before he's ever even in his presence. And then once he walks by and lets his hand go, no physical person is going to be able to create the radiance of glory that was seen on Moses' face that shone so brightly he had to be veiled. Uh, and so we know that these are not true physical people being expressed uh, being being shown in scripture they are a spiritual being that is made manifest in a certain way okay. matt i thought you were going to say something okay charlie yeah jacob wrestling with the angel of the lord yeah Yeah, well, I, I would argue it is a theophany. I would argue it's a Christophany uh, because it's the angel of the Lord. And, and um, there is, there, there's a difference between angels who convey the Lord's message or watch over his people or aid in battle as we see in certain places. But when we see the angel of the Lord, the way that he is uh, reverenced, worshipped, he takes upon himself the divine name uh, and speaks with divine authority, then it, it's safe to conclude that the angel of the Lord uh, is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. Is he the word angel? 
Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily but in the context of everything, uh, we see that being the best year, the main best year. He's called the angel. But everything around those verses, like you said, if there's anything there, that's, that's God. But anyways, I yeah. see that as an example. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, it's not actual God. It's just uh, yeah. no man has ever really seen the Father. And we can, and we can think of a, a lot of different examples of that. And I think that's what that's what needs to be remembered is that passage that no man has seen the Father. And so any of these uh, spiritual manifestations of a person who is the Lord, we have to understand that if that is God the Father that is being shown there, that people are seeing, if we're going to say that, we have to say that Christ is a liar because he says no one has seen the Father. Um, And that's why I argue all of these spiritual manifestations of God in the Old Testament are uh, manifestations of the pre-incarnate Christ. Because no one has seen the Father, but you have seen me, is what Christ says. And so even in the Old Testament, we people have seen Christ. It, uh, comment, Sorry. Forgot about your comment. You didn't raise your second hand. Um, so concerning the Acts um, 17, God, 24, God made God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the, the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made in hands. Christ says he is in us. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Who makes us in the womb? It, it's, God does, yeah. not with hands. So to me, that tells, that says that I am the temple that God's going to be in. Yeah, yeah, we... We are the temple in which the Spirit resides in that special way that he did in the Holy of Holies in, in the Old Testament. Uh, and then there is an additional special presence of the Lord in the gathering together of the saints for worship. And all of that points towards that day at the end of the age when it will be a corporate dwelling within the immediate presence. Because even with the indwelling of the Spirit within us as temples not made by hands, even within that, it is still a mediated presence. We cannot come into the immediate presence of the Lord because of our sinful state. And so even with the indwelling of the Spirit and His presence among us now, it is still a mediated presence. And we we enter into the presence of the Lord through the mediation of Christ's blood on our behalf. But the day will come when we will approach in an immediate way because all of our impurities will have been wiped away. 
And so we will be able to purely stand before the pure God. Uh, so that, that's the distinction. Yes, within us we have the, the Lord dwelling, but that is just pointing us to when it is fulfilled at the end of the age. Does that make sense? Uh, let's move on in hopes that we can get through more than two questions. Um, now looking at God as a personal being. Psalm 25 verse 8. Anybody? Psalm 25, verse 8. But God commendeth his love for us. Nope, that's Romans 5. <laughs> what is it doing? Good and upright is the Lord. There, therefore will, will he teach sinners in, in the way. Okay. Good and upright is the Lord. And therefore will he teach sinners in the way. So what aspects of God's personality are given here? Goodness, uprightness, which point us towards his righteousness, his holiness. Um, the statement that he teaches sinners uh, points to his uh, knowledge. You know, those are, those are communicable attributes of God. Knowledge, righteousness, holiness. He created man in a state of perfect knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Um, and so we are able to, even in our fallen state, retain those attributes of God. Um, so God is all-knowing. He is all-righteous. He is all-holy. Um, any other comments? about the aspects of God's personality that are given in this text? All right. Looking at John 3.16. Hopefully someone can just say it. Anyone? Chris, you look like you're itching to do it. <laughs> okay. Go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that will never breath up. Believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is the personal trait of God that's stated here? Love. Love. Tell me about the love of God, Bob. For God so loved the world. So, gosh, the love of God is profound. It's, it's sacrificial. Mm -hmm. It's, it's uh, 
they try and define it by using uh, again terms that we can understand. You look at First uh, Corinthians 13, describing love, um, and then you start to realize that that's God's trying helping us to understand His character in that. something that's hard to get our hearts and our minds about. Um, and we talk about it a lot. But to really in, make it part of what we think and what we are. Uh, God, for God so loved uh, is just profound. Also, yeah. it's an act of love. Yeah. For God so loved the world he gave. It's, it's not just he loved the world. Loves the world, he loved the world and gave it. It's an active, not a passive. It's it's the uh, what I would consider the only the only example of purest unconditional love. Yeah, I think I think far too often in modern evangelical circles we we dumb down the love of God we make it into you know oh God God's cool with me that means he loves me you know the love of God is brought down to the level of my love for tacos like a very strong affinity but that's about it. And that's not what the love of God is. I feel like a lot of times people focus, like, yes, you should focus on God's love, but you should eliminate his other mm. attributes as well. People will take his justice away when they talk about how he just loves everyone. Mm. And as if that gives them the right to do whatever they want to. Because he loves them and he'll forgive them. Yeah. Yeah, and... Love demands, like, God's love for sinners demands that he command obedience of them. Because if he loves sinners, if he truly loves them, then he will not let them remain in their wicked, sinful state. He will call them out of it. And so, you know, people will say it's unloving to not let me do X, Y, Z and that X, Y, Z are sinful actions. You know, we see that all the time with the homosexual, transgender, alphabet suit people. That you don't love me unless you affirm me in my sin. And so that's what that's what they think of God as well. God wouldn't God doesn't love me unless he affirms me in my sin. God is love, so he has to affirm me in my sin. And that's wicked. 
You know, God's love calls them to repentance. Yes, it's His justice that will be meted out upon the wicked in the end. But His love in this moment calls sinners to repentance. Um, And so, yeah, I, I think we see that as well. Another thing that we see is a perversion of God's love. We talked about this last week, I believe, is this mentality of what the Jesus is my boyfriend view. Like, it's, yeah, or Jesus is, you know, the girl side is Jesus is my boyfriend. The boy side is Jesus is my homeboy. And it's like this very simplistic, man-centered view of God's love because God's love isn't about us. And if us meditating upon God's love makes us think about ourselves, we probably are meditating upon self-love, not God's love. Uh, Yes, God's love is poured out upon us. Yes, we should appreciate what the Lord has done for us in loving us. But His love is not about us. His love is about bringing glory unto Himself. And the way that he does that is by bringing us to him and having a relationship with us that is intimate, that is pure, that is undefiled, and not like this weird boyfriend relationship or this homeboy relationship that we just kick back and chill with. No, God is our king, our sovereign. We love him, we respect him, we honor him, we worship him. That is, the, that is what is commanded of us because God loved us. Any other thoughts, comments? Bob? There's another passage. In John, very well that no man pardon and give him life. So that's the Very well that that time. But very well that no man then can give his life for that for the others. Mm-hmm. So the demonstration of God's love through Christ, his death on the cross, is also very profound. Mm-hmm. Because Christ took upon himself our sins at that point. And there was a break in that relationship between the Father and the Son. As Christ took upon himself sin. Briefly, whatever, but it, it was terrible for Christ. He was suffering beyond something we can comprehend. To break that, to take that sin, for him who was without sin, our sins. And um, God can't look upon sin. So he took it, and sa- the sacrifice was just, proper, the pure sacrifice, and it was resolved. But he gave his life for our sins and suffered greatly physically and I think he was spiritually and spiritually. Um, so it's a, um, it, 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 it's just another demonstration of love. Um, and you know, if I gave my life for you, then that is a demonstration of my care and concern. As we pour our lives out of 
demonstration where a lot of the wealth of the church came from the members here. So that's sort of how we, we can apply ourselves mm -hmm. uh, as we give ourselves to, to God's kingdom. And it says, pour our own lives out. Give of our time, talent, treasures to God's kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, Christ says they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. You know, we're called to love as we have been loved. And so understanding the self-sacrificial nature of God's love for us, understanding that God's love is not about us, but it is about bringing Him glory we can then turn around and love one another, love our neighbors in that way, you know, being willing to sacrifice great things for the sake of love and doing all of this, showing love in all ways with the express aim not of making us look good or making them feel good, but to bring God glory. And that's, that's how we demonstrate our love for one another um, by loving in the way that we have been loved. Well, let's move on. And I don't know if we're going to finish this section or not. Uh, but let's move on to God is a triune being. That he is... Three persons, yet one God, united in the Godhead. So, looking at number one, the Trinitarian nature of God is progressively revealed in the Old Testament. How many of you would say that the Trinity is revealed in the Old Testament? Hopefully all of us. Um, I have heard men say, I've heard elders, not in the RP church, but I've heard elders say that the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament. It's not until the New Testament that we see the Trinity revealed. And that's wrong. If you hear people say that, correct them because it's wrong. Um, the Trinity is revealed, and I like the way that this workbook puts it, progressively throughout the Old Testament. It starts in seed form. And as the Old Testament moves forward, as redemptive history pushes forward, that seed form of the Trinity being revealed in the Old Testament begins to flourish, blossom, grow until we get to the fullest uh, representation of it, which is in the New Testament, which contains you know, interactions of all three persons of the Trinity as well as explicit teachings of all three persons of the Trinity. Um. So looking at how God has progressively revealed the, his Trinitarian nature in the Old Testament, first we're going to look at what's called the majestic plural. 
Um, and this is found in Genesis chapter 1 and verses 1 to 3. And then also in verse 26. So if I can get someone to read those. One to three, and then twenty-six. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And then verse twenty-six. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So, how does God refer to himself in these verses? Particularly in verse 26. Us, us, our, you know, he's he's using first person plural pronouns, um, and and the the way we see this, you know, liberal scholars, you know, your your academics out there who want to be biblical scholars but don't actually believe the Bible. They'll say, well, this is, this is an example of what's known as the royal plural or the majestic plural as, as it's mentioned here. And we see in ancient writings where when in, in false religions, gods would be speaking, uh, a singular god would use the plural pronoun in order to show uh, his magnitude, his power. And we see that in ancient uh, royal writings. That's why it's referred to as the royal plural, uh, where kings will speak in the royal we. Um, and they'll say, because we have examples of this here, that must be what's going on here. There's no way that, you know, God saying, let us make man in our image is in reference to a triune God. It has to be that this divine being is speaking in the same way as all these other divine beings and using this majestic plural, this royal we. Um, but that's not what we see in the text. Before we see the plural pronoun, you know, all right. Click on your English classroom brains real quick. If you have a pronoun, it ought to be referring to something else. What is that something else called? Uh, antecedent. antecedent. So a plur plur uh, plural pronoun must refer back to a plural antecedent. What's the antecedent of let us make man in our image. What's the antecedent of us? It goes back to verses 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we got, we got the Father. 
and the Spirit of God hovered over the earth. So we have the Spirit present. And then let us make, or, or let there be light. Um, and, and so you have the Word spoken, who is the Word of God, which in Philippians, or not Philippians, in Colossians, is said that it is by Him, through Him, and to Him were all things created. Who is that Word but Christ? And so in verses 1 to 3, and don't let the Jehovah's Witnesses or, or, or even evangelicals say that it is the light that is Christ in verse 3. Uh, because that is Arianism. That means that God is created or that Christ is created because light is created. No, it is the spoken word which is eternal that has the power to create who is Christ. And so in, in the first three verses, we have the three persons laid out. The Father, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit hovering over the waters. And then the spoken word. Uh, and then God said, let, let there be light. And so we have all three persons referred to in verses 1 to 3. That is your plural antecedent for let us make man in our image. Does that make sense? Do you guys understand what I'm saying about light not being Christ? There are Trinitarian, Evangelical, even some Reformed, Christians who will say Christ is the light of the world. And we see that in Genesis 1 when God said, let there be light. That is Christ in the Old Testament. But that's Arianism. What you're saying is Christ is therefore a created being. Yeah, Christ is an uncreated being. That is wrong. Yeah, the light is literal light. If God said, let us make, uh, or, or if God said, let there be light, Light is created, and if you're saying that that light is Christ, you have just said that Christ is a created being. But we know that's not true. Christ is eternally begotten. He is, he is the eternal Son of God, and so He possesses the divine attribute of eternality. He was never created. And so, please just be careful in, in not... Just receiving something that sounds right. Because it does sound right. Christ is the light of the world. God said, let there be light. And this is Christ at the beginning of the age. Yeah. The proof text would be, you know, John, John 1. Mm. Um, in, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Mm -hmm. was life. And life was light. Yeah. Yeah, so there, there we see that in the beginning, we see Christ is the Word. Um, so just be mindful of how easy it is to... how easy it is to not not intentionally 
unintentionally. That's the word I was trying to find. How easy it is to unintentionally spread heretical teaching. Yes, there are heretics who will say that about the light, um, who are doing it intentionally. They're trying to spread that teaching. But the vast majority of people that you'll experience who may say that, they're unintentionally spreading it. They, they're speaking out of their own ignorance. Um, and so it, it's good for you to know that beforehand so that you can easily uh, correct it. Let's do one more. Oh, we're getting, we're getting to something that I already talked about. Uh, let's do this, la- this B one real quick, and then uh, we'll, we'll end for this morning. So looking at the angel of the Lord, which I've already spoken to extensively, an Old Testament prefiguring of God's salvation through the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, so let's look at the angel of the Lord real quick. And Genesis 32 in verse 30. Yep, Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. Jacob was left alone and wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day when he saw that he. I'm sorry, I'm starting at 25. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he cut the hollow of his thigh. The hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. He said, let me go. The day is breaking. And he said, I will not let me go, except I bless you. And he said unto him, what's thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince has the power of God, and with them he has to be Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I pray thee, my name. And he said, Where is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, mm-hmm. for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So looking at that last portion that uh the naming of the place. What is it that Jacob says about his encounter with the angel at Peniel? Why is it that he names it Peniel? Because he saw God face to face. And so, you know, we've got the angel of the Lord here wrestling with Jacob and Jacob at the end of it knows who it was that he just fought with, that he just wrestled with. And he says, 
that this place is called Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. Um, so there we have an attestation that the angel of the Lord is God. Let's look again or, or look, look further in Genesis at Genesis chapter 48 and verse 16. Still looking at Jacob. Angel would redeem me from all evil, bless the Lord, and let let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into the multiple in the midst of the earth. So what does, uh, what did Jacob say that the angel had done for him? Who is it that is the redeemer of men? It's Christ. And so Jacob is attributing something that can only rightly be attributed to the Lord to the angel, to the angel of the Lord. And so... Any other comments about the angel of the Lord? I know we've talked about this pretty extensively already. All right. Um, We'll stop there. We'll begin at the plurality of God's being in the Psalms next week. And uh, move on from there. But let's pray and then begin to get ready for our worship service. So, Bob, can you close us in prayer? Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. Very overcast as it is. Lord, we pray that uh, you would watch over us and be with us now as we gather our gather to worship. Thank you for the privilege we have of being in your house this day. We thank you in Christ's name.